んでしょう So, today we turn a corner. If not in our practice, at least in terms of the teachings and the theory, because thus far we have been engaging really what, in what can be called, quite rightly, preliminary practices. The, these are preceding and preparing us for the practice of vipassana. And as we go into this next chapter on the cultivation of insight or vipassana, then we'll see, really for the first time, the, the term used path, a path. So I won't elaborate on that. I've done it many, many times.、Um, but of course, just extremely briefly, path means you actually have a trajectory, you're actually going someplace, and not simply practicing Dharma, getting some good virtue, merit, having that come to fruition, and then, and then you're finished, then it's over. So when we move into Vipassana, then of course, this is all about gaining insight into the nature of the reality we're experiencing. And I did make just a Few prefatory comments and then go right into the practice using settling the mind in its natural state as our baseline and then crossing the threshold into Vipassana. But I'm going to take a little detour, short, in psychology, and I know this from my very esteemed friend,、uh, Paul Ekman,、uh, that affective psychologists, among whom he's really one of the stars. Uh, speak of something called a refractory period. And many of you, but perhaps not all of you, know what that means. Refractory period when you get caught in the grip of some emotion or some obsession or some desire or anger and so forth and so on. And frankly, you can't see straight. That is, you can only see things through this vision, through this view, as a way of viewing reality, a very screwed up, klishta, which means distorted, related to klesha, view of reality, such that you can only see things that accord with your. Prejudice, with your bias, with your filtration. You can't, as you're ten, you literally cannot see something that is incompatible with your belief, your fixation, your obsession, right? And so you're blind. In other words, reality is there and it's hidden in plain sight because it's presenting itself to you and you don't see it. You don't see it, okay? You probably already have that figured out. And so you can know it, how it can happen in obsession, in craving, and so forth. Uh, the blindness that comes in, like in addiction, for example, the blindness that something is evident to everybody around you and you just can't see it, you go into complete denial. Not because you're trying to say no, you just actually don't see it. And likewise, in rage, there it is.、Uh, of course, it can happen in jealousy, it can happen in pride, arrogance. All of these can so distort the vision that we're not even aware that anything's wrong. In other words, it's the worst type of ignorance that you don't know what you don't know. Right? So, there's a lot, of, a lot of insight there in modern psychology in this regard. It's there, of course, it's been in Buddhism for a long time.、Um, but now we're going deeper. We're going beyond the kind of the, these derivative mental afflictions of craving hyphen attachment, which always entails some degree of a refractory period, a filtering. And the likewise for anger, hostility, hatred always entails a filtering, a refractory period. But now, as you go into this practice very shortly, We're going to go deeper into an area that, frankly, I, I don't, as far as I know, I don't think it's touched on much, if at all. And that is the refractory period of reification. Reification. So let's just get really comfortable with that term, because it's a nice short term. It's not an everyday language, but it's not extremely esoteric either. Reification from the Latin root 
race, I think, real, real. And so we're viewing something as having a more real, inherent, absolute, autonomous existence than it in fact has. We're substantializing, tangibilizing, uh, absolutizing. Okay, and that happens a lot. It's a, and of course, we've already been introduced to this. It's called idolatry, right? When we idolize anything, and that goes not only for images. Of course, can we Im can we idolize images? Of course, that's happened a lot. Can we idolize people? Sure. Can we idolize books? Do religious people ever idolize books? You know, and just think about you know David Finkelstein's comments on that point. A non-symmetrical relationship where the book influences you, but you don't influence the book. The book is an absolute, and you're, you're not an absolute. Oh, that's a refractory period. All religious fundamentalism is rooted in idolatry. But let's not let everybody else off the hook. Ever heard of the little red book? That was Mao's idolatrous little book, you know. So politicians, philosophers, it happens everywhere. There's just a lot of religion, so there's a lot of religious crap. That's right. Just because there's a lot of religion. If you have a lot of anything, people will be screwing up in many, many ways if, if, if there's a lot of it. And there's a lot of religion, has been for a long time. Therefore, it screwed up a lot, right? So, but the point here is this, this reification in the teachings of the Madhyamaka, the Middle Way view, with which all of these teachings we'll be covering for the next four weeks are completely compatible, there's something very interesting, many, many things interesting. Here's one of them. And that is that we don't homogeneously, just we ordinary people, we don't homogeneously reify everything. Any more than we're homogeneously feeling craving and attachment, homogeneously feeling anger and hatred. It comes in bouts, it comes in waves. Right? So a person who is, has profound insight, like an Arya, who has direct realization of emptiness, a person with profound insight, uh, but maybe not an Arya yet, but a person who has gained some real glimpses, gained some, some shafts of light, some spikes, some cutting through to insight into emptiness, and then the clouds come over and, and cover it over again. Okay? So the insight is genuine, but then it gets obscured again, and you forget it. Right? That happens. For such a person, there'll be occasions when, as you're attending to someone or something or whatever, or yourself, you're actually gaining some insight. You're actually knowing something. For a moment, you've got it there. For a moment, you're seeing, ah, it's just an appearance. And that's it. It's just an appearance. There's nothing more to it. It's just what you see is what you get. And it appears to be from its own side, but it's not. It's just an empty appearance arising in space. And then we have all these metaphors. The rainbow, the illusion, the mirage, the reflection in a mirror, the moon and sun and stars in the water, and so on. Right? So there are times when you see that. You actually have insight, right? For this person who's kind of on the path, getting somewhere, kind of coming out of the delusion. The datura is wearing off. And this is not the datura of the materialists, although they have, they have a severe case of it. Uh, but even non-materialists, of course, everybody's prone to this. So there's, there'll be those periods when you kind of like, I get it, oh, and then, oh, and then you're back into the um, same slope. So, and then there are occasions, for this kind of person, 
where you really you're having one of those malarial fits of reification where you're just you're just reifying the hell out of everything you know whatever you're attending to the reification welcome beata she's joining our sangha she's been with us all along you just haven't seen her she's now <laughs> making a grand appearance beata stolte yeah and so so even a person who has insight will then fall off the wagon. Like if you're, you know, a practicing alcoholic and or a non-practicing alcoholic, and they just start practicing in, okay, then you're back into the same rut, right? So those two kind of obvious. Sometimes you're actually seeing things the way they are, and then then you fall back into the reification. But there's a third category. This one's quite interesting, where you don't rise to the level of either seeing the emptiness of phenomena, the fact that they're mere appearances, empty appearances, nor are you reifying. You're kind of hovering in between. And this happens for people who have never been exposed to any type of philosophy at all. Ordinary people who just, you know, they're farmers, they're bricklayers, they're accountants. You know, they, they say philosophy. I'm, I've never really got into philosophy, thanks. What's for dinner? You know, not stupid people. It's just people who have not really started probing into the nature of reality. There are times when we we engage with appearances, we, you, we use names, labels, and so forth, and without the insight into the emptiness, but nor are we reifying. So you can see for yourself, some of you may have had glimmers, I think, some insights, some, at least some intimation on occasion of the emptiness of phenomena, the dreamlike nature of appearances. Sometimes it's sharper, sometimes it fades. And then here's the point of the practice today, and that is recognize those times, those comes in waves, like a surge, where the mind goes like into a spasm. The mind goes into a clutch. It's almost like having a, an epileptic seizure of the mind, where it seizes up. It seizes up. It's rigid. It's tight. It's locked in, right? It happens in fear. But frankly, it happens in every mental affliction that arises. They always have reification at their root. Every single one. That's a big hypothesis. But watch for it. Watch for it. Watch when the mind seizes up. Watch when the mind reifies, grasp onto, gets in the clutch, whatever it's attending to. And other times when you're simply, even if you don't have insight into emptiness, it's a lighter touch. You're simply aware. Appearances arising. I get it. I'm not sure whether they're empty or not, but they are appearances. And that's true. Still true. See when the mind goes into this subtle refractory period of grasping, of reification. It can be generally like looking at Claudio's knee. I may reify his knee. So any anything, something I'm rather indifferent about. You know, his knee. I'm glad he has two of them. <laughs> Besides that, I don't have much of an opinion. You know. But then look, especially in this practice we're about to begin as you're just resting there in awareness, attending to the space of the mind, whatever arises. See when your awareness is like an octopus, a hungry octopus. <laughs> I'm not kissing, in case you thought that. This was sucker. This was a sucker reaching out and grasping onto. What do you think the octopus think when it reaches out and clutches a fish? Mine. I kind of had this octopus flash there. 
kind of like having all those arms. I got so much grasping, I can, I'm better than human beings. I can grasp at eight directions at once. You know, see when the grasping takes place. See when the tentacles of I and mine reach out and latch onto something. It was just a fish. <laughs> Until you latched onto it. And now it's your fish, right? But until then, it was just a fish. Until you latched onto it, it was just a thought. Until you latched onto it, it was just an emotion. It was just a desire, just a memory. A memory. You know. In science fiction, we've seen this. You know, a number of movies have dealt with this thing of artificially implanting false memories into people. You know, maybe it'll happen one day. Not so far, but science fiction is fun. So you have a memory of something that never occurred, right? And you still latch onto it. Imagine that it's actually artificially inserted into your brain, you know, the neural correlates of some memory, and suddenly you have, oh, I remember being, I remember being some, you know, whatever. And it feels like your memory just because you're thinking it, just because it's arising in the space of your mind, but in fact it's a memory that's not yours at all, that just is there. And it's memory like the fish is the octopuses, just because you latched onto it. Right. So let's watch that. I'll give a little bit of guidance in the practice. But let's now cross the threshold. The settling the mind in its natural state is already a shamatha practice. It's brinkmanship, brinkmanship. That is, it's right on the edge. Right on the edge. Right. That is, it could so easily t tip over into vipassana. It's so close. Let's tip. Let's tip it. So find now a comfortable position. You can lie on your back, you can, any like you like. You can lie on your face if you like. <laughs> Okay. You should be very well aware now how important these first minutes or two are of truly settling your body in that state of balance between relaxation and vigilance, the subtleness of releasing all grasping, all sense of control, all effort regarding the breath. In this pyramid, with the base being the body settled in a state of dynamic equilibrium, on that basis, the respiration flowing naturally, effortlessly. On that basis comes the tip of the pyramid, the subtlest, and that is resting your awareness effortlessly in its own place. still and clear. Day and night, a hundred times, whether you're here in retreat here in Araluan, 
or at home anywhere else in the world, day and night, as many times as you can. Return here. Make yourself at home. Get thoroughly familiar with your awareness resting in its own place and know exactly what it feels like. Yet let your eyes be at least partially open, eyes soft and relaxed, utterly natural, blinking whenever you feel like it. the six domains, the six spaces, the visual, the auditory, and on through the space of the mind, now select one. Just focus on that one, the space in which mental events take place. Don't look too hard. Don't probe too deeply or you'll find that you can't find it. Casually. Simply look where thoughts arise, where om mani peme hum arises. That's it. Where the letters appear, om, mani, beme, hum, the visual appear, the auditory appear, but in the space of the mind, attend there.
and like an old man watching other people's children play. Or to use Dujum Lingma's image, like a cow herder observing the herd of cows, quietly grazing in the field, walking here, trotting over there. Attentive, interested, utterly relaxed. Observe the mere appearances arising in the space of the mind for exactly what they are. Mere appearances arising in the space of the mind. Observe these ownerless appearances in Tibetan Chutsam, these mirror phenomena, for what they are. Then deliberately think a thought, anything you like. And observe that sense. I'm thinking that thought, that's my thought. It belongs to me. Let your baseline be your awareness resting in stillness in its own place, observing the space of the mind. But then with great interest, examine when your awareness is set in motion, when grasping sets in. When you're experiencing something more than mere appearances.
Observe when your mind grasps to the referent of some thought or image. Grasp to something existing outside of the space of your mind existing independently of the space of your mind. Observe that when it happens. Let's take a step inwards now. Very simple question. Do you have a sense of yourself as being someone who is sitting or lying here, observing the space of the mind? Is there some sense of yourself as the subject, the observer? What is that sense? What comes to mind? I'm inviting you now to look for something that is there. This is not some tricky koan or any other kind of trick. proposing that you do have a sense of your own presence, a sense of being the subject, the observer. And it's a very simple question. What is that sense? How do you experience your own presence? What comes to mind? If you see something coming up to mind, coming to mind when you seek to examine 
not yourself, but your sense of being someone, the subject. If an appearance does come to mind, ask a very simple question. Is that, in fact, an appearance of you? Is that a representation of you? Or is it just one more empty appearance that's no more you than the appearance of a pencil or a leaf? practicing settling the mind in its natural state, you probably found on occasion that when you observe an image, an appearance, a thought, it seemed to vanish almost instantly. It would not bear your observation, but would dissolve back into the space of the mind. If this was true for other appearances, then it's bound to be true here when we attend to the appearances of ourself. But be gentle, be soft, be casual. And look into the mirror of your mind and see if you can see a reflection of yourself. Just to see it, to see what comes up.
you seek to observe the appearances of yourself, do forms arise? Do they have shape, color? Does the form of your face arise, your body, something else? Or when you invert your awareness in upon yourself, your experience of being the observer, do you experience yourself as more of an intangible, formless, shapeless presence? If so, examine what are the qualities of that presence. Very simply, how do you appear to yourself? And are these appearances you? Or are they simply empty appearances that are utterly empty of you? Just as all these other thoughts and images are empty of you, there's no you in them, there's no you who possesses them. They are just what they are. Thoughts and images arising in the space of the mind and dissolving of their own accord. If you want to find yourself, you must be looking in the right place. You're not going to find yourself in neurons or heart tissue or skin, bone, blood. That's unlikely. Silly. So if you do exist, if you really are someone, you must be someplace. And this is the best place to look for you. The space of the mind. If you are anywhere, you must be here. To think of yourself as being outside of this space? Silly. You must be here. But if you're here, show your face. If you really are a sentient being, really, there is really someone who is you and that is a sentient being. You should be findable right here. This is the place to look. Sentient beings, show your face. 
rest with no questions. So if there are any sentient beings in the room here, raise your hand. You found yourself. You did. Oh, congratulations. Some of you, have been, if you've been listening very carefully over the last four weeks, you may have noticed now and then some subtle intimation that I'm quite critical of materialism. You did pick up on that, okay. I try to be really discreet and just slip it in here and there, but yeah, I'm actually quite critical of it. And my critical is not the, the, my beef, my, my struggle with materialism is not that it's simply wrong, and many things that are wrong, just too many to be upset about. And it's not even that it's falsely being presented as scientific truth, and I love science, and materialism doesn't warrant the name bullshit. So that kind of bothers me a bit, because that's just fraudulent, that's just flat-out dishonest. I don't like dishonesty of any kind. But I think my fundamental grudge is that we even have to think about materialism at all. That it even has to come up, even to the point of refuting it. That kind of pisses me off. Because we have more important things to do. It shouldn't even warrant our attention. Because we have two types of ignorance. We have conate ignorance. That's the real issue. Conate ignorance. The ignorance we're born with. We can't blame it on our parents or genes or anybody else. It's just, you're a sentient being, you're born with it. Nobody to blame. No God, nobody. You're born with it. But the really good news is, even though you're born with it, which means it's, it's, it's instinctive, you're not hardwired for it. That's the one, the one good silver lining of the cloud. That's, that's the real issue. This conate ignorance, conate delusion, conate reification, conate grasping onto I and mine, things that are neither I nor mine, that's the real issue. That warrants our attention. As much attention we give to that, fine, time well spent. Because you're dealing with something really important. right? Dealing with it effectively, you can cut through it. You really have a chance to be free. This is Kone. That's what Buddhist philosophy is really about. 
It's not just debating with the samkhyas and the nyayakas and so forth and so on. It's, I mean, that's all fun. You know, it sharpens the intellect. That's good. That's fine. But the whole point of the Four Noble Truths, the whole point of the three principles of the path, shravagyana, mahayana, vajrayana, mahamudra, dzogchen, madhyamaka, all of that is to get to conate ignorance because that's the source of suffering. That's the root of all mental afflictions. That's what really deserves our attention. That's important. Spend 10 years on it, 20 years on it, 20 lifetimes on it. At least you're dealing with something that's a real issue. And if you triumph there, oh, that's a big triumph. Right? Whereas then we have Kadasabane. The Marikbe, Marikba, Kundakbe Marikba. This is the acquired, it's the fabricated, the, the fantastical. It's just false views that we acquire during the course of a lifetime. Some people acquire the false view of a racism, false view that women are somehow inferior, false view that animals are unconscious. I mean, there's just no end to ridiculous false views that people conjure up as if conate ignorance weren't enough. There's just no end to it, you know. It's just limitless. So imagine you could spend 80 years as the smartest person on the planet and refuting every single one of these weeds that crop up of artificial ignorance, acquired ignorance, and at the end of the day, you would have a universe full of unplucked weeds. Because there's no end to it. There's just no end to it. The mind has an infinite capacity to come up with, to use a nice word, bullshit, but just to use a more slender word, false views, that we just create out of nowhere. You know? And so, life is too short. We have years or decades here, and then we're on. And this opportunity here, this leisure and opportunity, where we have the intelligence, enough intelligence to cut through conate ignorance, it pisses me off that I even have to mention materialism. Who needs to refute Nazism at this point, except for a few cuckoos here and there? But you know, it's pretty obvious. So Nazism is much worse than everyday materialism, but I hardly ever mention it, because it's like, okay, it's dead. For some cuckoos here and there, right? So it kind of pisses me off that materialism, this fabricated ignorance and delusion, has to be addressed at all. So I'm not going to address it for a while. <laughs> we have short time here. And it's a tremendous burden. It's crushing. And people who are suffering from that never even get to the chance of addressing conate ignorance. Because they're just floundering. They're drowning in an ocean of sewage. This man-made sewage. That's really sad. Then they don't even have a chance to get to the deeper issues. Conate ignorance, conate delusion. That's Grapple with that, and you're actually free. Refute materialism. Imagine I go around like King Kong, and I imagine I publish 40 more books <laughs> that are all bestsellers, every single one of them, you know? New York Times bestseller list, one through ten, all by Alan Wallace. And they're all refuting materialism, and the whole planet becomes free of materialism. I'm Attila the Hun of destroying materialism. And then I die. Everybody's just as screwed up as they were before, in terms of conate ignorance. You haven't even moved one step towards liberation. Because now you're back to square one. I just got you out of the hole. Now you're just floundering on the surface of the ocean of samsara. Which means I accomplished what? And of course, that's not going to happen. So here we are. 
Now we're dealing with the real stuff. Now we're dealing with stuff that we get some insight, we can actually set out on a path. That's big. That's really important. So let's jump in. I noticed that in the first four weeks we covered two chapters. Now we have four weeks and we have four chapters. <laughs> so we're going to have to do some playful things with time. Time is not inherently existent. So we're going to have to make use of that. Yep, there it is. Insight, vipassana, identification, practice, and mahamudra. We have our work cut out for us. Okie dokie. So let's just jump right in. Chapter 4. Cultivation of vipassana, homage to Avalokiteshvara. These are the profound practical instructions of Avalokiteshvara. Bearing in mind that every emanation of the Buddha, whether it's Tara, Avalokiteshvara, Yamantaka, whoever it may be, has all the qualities of all the Buddhas. It's just that <coughs> like one of those chandeliers that has like cut, cut, cut uh, crystal that has many, many, many faces and reflecting in all different directions, but it's one crystal. Well, there's the face of Avalokitevada, there's, there's Makala, there's, you know, they're, they're there, and they're all facets, displays, reflections of one Dharmakaya. So we should not be, we should not say, hey, Avalokitevada, aren't you a little bit out of your depth? Shouldn't you turn this over to Manjushri? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you get back to Bodhicitta where you belong? <laughs> Avalokiteshvara would say, pipe down. <laughs> I've got it covered. <laughs> Who do you think you are, anyway? So these are the profound practical instructions of Avalokiteshvara, the method for escaping from samsara. Now we've finally gotten down to it. He never said that before. Because it wasn't there. All those preliminary practices, stage regeneration all by its lonesome, without explicitly dealing with vipassana. Mm-mm. Shamatha, of course not. <clears throat> this is the method, Vipassana, this is the method for escaping from samsara and reaching the path of the Aryas. So this is why I'm still teaching, to help people as much as I can, even if my efforts are, you know, teeny, to help people reach a path. Actually, they are moving irreversibly towards awakening. So to do what? Develop the wisdom of insight. So, he's just going right to the core Due to what fault do we wander around in the cycle of existence? The answer is not materialism, or theism, or religion, or atheism. None of the above. None of the above. Nobody's born with those. Nobody's born an atheist, or a materialist, or a theist. Anything. It's something conate. It is the fault of apprehending that which is without a self, or being dev uh, that is devoid of a self, as being a self. Well, we were just looking in the, in the right room. We found the right room to look in, right? Not in the visual domain. That's kind of cool, but you don't really expect to see, I don't expect to see myself, oh, there I am, in the visual, not likely. That'd be a silly place to look. The, the tactile, why? What am I, earth, water, fire, you know? No, we found the right domain, that's really good. Space of the mind. If there's a self anywhere, that's the place to look, right? So, hmm. The fault is apprehending, grasping onto that which is without a self, devoid of a self, as being a self. Like, oh, like all those appearances that arose in the space of the mind, including the appearances that might be taken as appearances of yourself. Or somebody asked to take a little selfie with me today. So, 
So we got, she held out the camera. And I saw myself. Yeah, I saw it. I saw myself. I'm about that big. <laughs> and I'm smiling forever. Except, I kind of think probably not. Probably just an empty appearance. So the sutra of the questions of Guna Ratna Sankusumita states, those with minds attached to samsara revolve forever. Okay? That's pretty straightforward. Attached to samsara can be understood, of course, in two ways. Attached to samsara, that is just, just hedonic treadmill, looking at that's going to make me happy, that makes me unhappy, let's get on. It's just kind of perpetual, never-ending, non-lucid dream. That's one way of just kind of being continuing to place our hopes that this is going to work out. I can massage this. I can, I can, I can win this game, the great game of samsara. I can win, and I just need to get her and avoid him and get him on my side and avoid her. She's not very nice. And I want to live here, and I, I want to look like this, and I, I'm, this is going to turn out well. You'll stay forever. So that's attachment, and then the deeper attachment, of course, is reification. As long as you're non-lucid, then the dream just never stops. They are, those with minds attached to the samsara revolve forever. They are not empty of the two real phenomena of I and mine, and these childish people themselves tie knots in the sky. In other words, nobody's doing this to them, <laughs> to them. Nobody's doing this to us. Nobody's imposing ignorance upon us. God's not toying with us. Buddha's not toying with us, giving us a little game to see if we can jump through hoops and win the game. Nobody's doing it to us. There's nobody out there giving us this delusion. We are doing it to ourselves. These childish people like tying knots in the sky. This is like taking poison with the sense that you need This is hilarious. This is like taking poison with the sense that you need it <laughs> and then fainting even, the po even though the poison does not enter inside you. <laughs> I think it's called placebo effect. <laughs> right? Or it's actually, technically, it's a nocebo effect because you know there's complete symmetry there. Complete symmetry. Nocebo effect. Placebo, placebo means please me. So if I take this sugar, little sugar tablet, uh, I'm going to become much handsomer. <laughs> Why are nobody laughing? <laughs> that was supposed to be funny. Um, or if I take this, you know, or this is going to make me worse. You know, something like that. And then because you think it does, it does. So this is a nocebo. That was, that, that was a nocebo effect. They don't even take the poison and they still feel bad. The proximity effect. Childish people take on actions as I and mine. I did that. That's mine. So superimposing a sense of I and mine on that which is simply not I and mine at all. Their attitude towards the self is to see it as real, because that it was already there prior to and independent of. You're identifying it, labeling it, conceiving of it. The attitude towards the self is seeing it as real, impermanent, Changing, yeah, impermanent, changing. I mean, I'm changing. I'm not, I haven't always been this way. You know, I was much better. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Okay. Nobody bought that one for a second. I can see that. So their attitude towards the self is to see it as real, impermanent, as being born and dying. 
Uh, we, I think we can relate to that. Mental fabrications appear in accordance with grasping. So the grasping is very creative. This is the creative, luminous display of the mind, creating its own datura fictions and then falling into the trap. It is taught, act without the objectification of I and mine. So what to do is, basically, stop it. <laughs> but in order to stop it, you need to know when you're doing it. And we're not doing it homogeneously. That's kind of the point. That's why I gave those initial prefatory comments. We're not doing it homogeneously. Any more than we're homogeneously greedy, homogeneously angry, and so forth. And it comes in waves, comes in waves. And likewise, reification. Sometimes it's really gnarly. Really, really in your face. Don't touch that. That's mine. That's pretty, pretty tangible. <laughs> like we're taking absolutely, you heard the, it was mostly the tone of voice that just managed to break out in, in words. But hey, who do you think you're talking to? You know, that kind of thing. You can't do that. That's mine. Stop. Where do you get off anyway, idiot? All of these you know. That's, as soon as you, all you have to do is listen to the voice and you know there's reification, let alone what the voice happens to be saying at the time. I have to share my, my favorite story. It's historically true. My favorite story of this imputation of mine, it's just marvelous. It's just so like, you've got to be kidding. That really didn't happen. And it really happened. And it was by Eurocentrics. We were, we were really, really weird with Eurocentrics on, you know, like me. This is my, one of my favorite stories all time. This guy, LaSalle, he was a Frenchman. The fact that he's French, I think, is irrelevant. Eurocentric is not irrelevant. The fact that he's from Europe, that's not irrelevant at all, because the Europeans did like this, not like anybody else. Old-fashioned people, like Genghis Khan, they'd come into an area with all their soldiers and the horsemen, and they'd have really good military. They'd beat the crap out of people and say, we won, we're taking over. I kind of get that. I mean, it's brute force, but, you know, we've been doing that for a long time, and everybody does it. The Chinese do it, the Europeans do it, the Africans do it, the Native Americans did it. Everybody does it. Animals do it. The chimpanzee tribe moves in and they kick out another chimpanzee. There's nothing new about that. Okay, I'm bigger than you are. I'm taking over. That's pretty clear. Get this one, though. This is my favorite. LaSalle, this French dude. He's not even a soldier. He's just a French dude, pretty much. He hops on a raft up at the headwaters of the Mississippi River. In other words, he, gets, he stands on a, a float of chunking wood. A, a, a chunking... A, a float of chunk... A float, a, f <laughs> a chunk of floating wood. He stands on a chunk of floating wood, stands on it, sits on it, and it flows down the river, and he looks to his right as he's drifting south. And he looks out there. It's a lot of land out there. He can see about 10 miles on the horizon. You know, Whoa, that's a lot of land. Well, you know what? All of the land from all of the water that flows from my right. I don't know how much it is, but all that land where there's water flowing into this river, that belongs to France. I love that. <laughs> he didn't even go look, let alone bring in a battalion, bring in soldiers and conquer all the Native Americans, which I really understand. He didn't even look. He just said, however much it is, we own it. Vive la France. 
And the craziest thing is, the other Europeans and the Americans say, okay. <laughs> Sounds good to me. You said it's yours. I guess it must be. Yep. And Thomas Jefferson comes along, very smart guy. And he writes a letter to Napoleon. He said, you want to sell it? <laughs> Napoleon's really hard up for money. He said, yeah, I'm 11 million. Deal. Okay. Now it belongs to us. <laughs> You'd have to think this all took place in a mental asylum. It's just, who's crazier? The guy that said it belongs to us or the guy who paid $11 million because he said it belongs to us? This is my favorite in all of recorded history. Like, whoa, talk about superimposing I and mine on something that is, are you kidding me? <laughs> Tell that one to your grandchildren. That one's really priceless. And then, you know, a couple of years later, then Lewis and Clark went out to see what they owned. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, a lot of grizzly bears out here. <laughs> I guess you all, we own a lot of grizzly bears, Dad. <laughs> you know, right back home. We still have a lot of French cities in California. A lot of what cities? A lot of French names. Oh, yeah, sure. Sure, as I said, you name it, you own it. <laughs> Oh, that's it. It was just too choice. Because all the other forms of grasping, you know, you beat up somebody, you totally get it. But that one, that, that takes the total cake. You don't even see it. You say, whatever's there, that's, that's mine. Okay. And then you reify it, of course. Okay, let's go a little bit more. A commentary on verifying cognition. So here we go into deep epistemology. For one who objectifies the self, that is, just that, objectifies the self. There really is something here, and it's called a cell. As there's a cell phone there, and there's a photo of this on the Dalai Lama there, and I'm, I'm over here. I'm over here. So for one who objectifies the self, there will always be the obsession of I. Due to this obsession, this clinging, this fixation, I am, and I'm serious, because of that, there is craving for joy. Because that's the first thing you notice about yourself when you've reified yourself, is you're not happy to sit still. In fact, rather than sit still, you'd rather stick your finger in an electric socket. At least I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing something. <laughs> you know, at least I'm doing something. Therefore, I am. I'm shocked, therefore I am. If it could be a pleasant shock, that would be nicer. But in absence of a pleasant shock, an unpleasant shock will do. There's craving for joy. There's craving for clearly for stimulation. There's craving for some affirmation. Yes, I'm really here. I'm not the only one that thinks I'm here. There's some reaffirmation coming from the objective side. Due to craving, one is obscured with faults. Well, craving, hostility, jealousy, everything flows from that. Due to seeing excellent qualities, there is more craving. As soon as we see something as attractive, something that is by its own nature is attractive and therefore will give pleasure. Security, safety, bliss, luminosity, or non-conceptuality. Bliss, or sensitive intensity, or safety. Cling to it. Due to seeing excellent qualities, things that are attractive, there's more craving, and this is taken as proof of I. Therefore, as long as there is the obsession with the self, one will revolve in samsara. From the same text, 
When there is a self, there is the discernment of others. Grasping and hatred occur towards the factions of self and other. Grasping to one's own side, hatred, aversion, suspicion, anger, resentment, resistance of all kinds towards that which is not seen as I and mine, not my family, not my nation, not my religious group, not my ethnic group, not my language group, you know, the other side, not my species. The other side. Hatred for that one. And re in relation to those, all mental afflictions occur. Well, that's, that's a very vast insight. Repercussions are universal everywhere there. Very interesting point here, and that is we see it very explicitly in Dzogchen, but it's really everywhere. It's an interesting statement, not at all obvious. Part of it's obvious, and then it's not so obvious, at least in my experience. And you can watch it. I suggest you do watch it. When you wake up, like tomorrow morning, a little bit of homework already. When you wake up, if you're waking up from a dream, then you're waking up from a mode of awareness in which you're already grasping to yourself. Right. And of course you're grasping onto something that is not yourself. If a dream is an empty appearance, then the word empty appearance doesn't mean anything, because that's classic. An empty appearance of a reflection in a mirror, that's classic. A rainbow, it's classic. A dreams, classic. There's nothing more to them than what they appear, and that is appearances, empty appearances. But if you're waking up from a dream, then you're coming from one type of self-grasping, grasping to the reification of self. And then you're perishing really quickly, and without batting an eyelash, you adopt another sense that is no more real than the one you just came from, but just more repetitive, more familiar. But if you're coming from deep sleep, and something rouses you from deep sleep, where that sense of self has not congealed, the talons have not clenched, they're just kind of open, but still talons, but they're just relaxed. If you're coming from that, and then you, you're coming towards the surface of conscious, consciousness, and then, then the hand closes. Watch that. Watch the sense of I. I'm waking up in my bed at Araluan, or wherever people are living by, listening by podcast. Watch that sense of self congeal. It wasn't there, and that it is. Like a, like a magician's act. Look, there's my hat. Oh, look, there's a bunny. You know, Empty hat? Oh, there's a bunny. Empty mind? Oh, there's me. <sighs> like that. But the interesting point is when there is this congealing, like again, like a hand closing in upon itself, the marvelous symbol of a fist, it is both a fist of grasping and clinging and attachment and ownership. And it's also, that is what I'm holding inside, is what I am attached to. And look at all these gnarly knuckles on the outside. That's the defense mechanism. You try, to, you try to take it away from me, and look what's waiting for you. All ridges, right? There's the artillery. There's the weapon on the outside. So the fist is just perfect. When anybody have, has a strong message they want to say, and they raise their fist, look out. Look, whatever it is, communism, fascism, materialism, Buddhism, I don't care, but whenever people say, yeah, look out. Because whatever's coming is probably not going to be good. Because that's the symbol of it. You know? So, here's the interesting part, though. There is, experientially, this is, this is not 
metaphysic. This is radically empirical. Watch that kind of seizure, that condensation, that coagulation, that freezing up to a sense of being a, lo a, a local self, a local self over here. And it stated, because there is this grasping of the self, therefore, straight, if this, therefore that, therefore, the appearance of the other arises. But the appearance of the other does not arise without that drawing together, that grasping of the self. So we have left and right, up and down. We have the knower and the known. You take away one, the other one's gone, right? No left, there's no right, no up, no down, no north, no south, and so forth. No self, no other. No other, no self. Even if you found yourself in deep space, disembodied, imagine that. Okay? Imagine you die, and then you're reborn in deep space, so you can't even see any stars anywhere. It's just, wah, that's a lot of nothing. Imagine that. You, took, you reincarnated in deep space with no form. you could still have a sense, boy, that's a lot of space out there. Yeah? I may be a disembodied presence, but at least I know that space over there. Separation. Even if you have no form, you're just, I'm over here, I know it. I know it. Because I'm not that. That's space. That's a lot of space. The appearance of the other arises independent upon the grasping to the self. And if we go deeper into the real mystery realm, all these appearances are nothing other than the appearances of the self. That's a deep one. That's not obvious. All the appearances of the other are, in fact, appearances of the self. But frankly, what else could they be? Where would those appearances be coming from? The moon, the sun, molecules, atoms, photons. Where would they be coming from? All the, all the appearance you ever experience at any time, whether in the dream state, whether you're in a, in a scientific laboratory, whether you're an artist, whether you're whatever you are, a farmer. If those appearances are not appearances of yourself, where did they come from? Welcome to your world. You don't have to claim it. All these appearances are already appearances of the self. Oh, but what, again, what was the referent? What was the referent? What, what, the appearance of the self. You remember that all creating sovereign? Does that ring a bell? That's you. You're all creating sovereign. Because nothing you experience at any time is anything other than an appearance in the space of your mind. And they're your appearances and they don't belong to anybody else. You can't say, you, you want some of mine? I'll give, you, I'll give you two of mine if you give two of me yours. How do you do that? How can you even imagine giving somebody else your appearance and getting theirs? Just because I'd kind of like to know, you know, what's your appearance like? Even if you have clairvoyance, you're still seeing their thoughts from your perspective. It's still your perspective. It's still your appearances of their appearances. But it's still then your appearances. So I said yesterday we'd go into dream yoga. I think it's high time because we're still we're right now. But here, for those of us here in Arulun, 
really a prime opportunity. We can, you know, we have virtually nothing else we need to do, which is really good. And so, daytime dream yoga is vipassana. There's nothing more to daytime dream yoga than just nuances, variations on the one theme of vipassana. And it's really fundamentally oriented to seeing daytime appearances, and that's all of them, everything you might possibly experience through all of the six doors of experience, all the six doors, seeing all of these as exactly what they're presented as, appearances. And of course, that's exactly what you're experiencing in the mind, in the dream state, are appearances. And the whole point of the Vipassana, all the way through, specifically the Majyamaka, the middle way, is the appearances during the daytime are no more real, no less real than the appearances during the dream state. Appearances are appearances. And they're empty in the dream state, and they're empty in the waking state. And the mere fact that other people see the same appearances, do a poll the next time you're dreaming. Just do a poll. You know, remember, if, you, if you're in a lucid dream, just ask. You can be dreaming this right now, and you say, okay, uh, Hosa, I see Claudia here. Do you see her? The chances are, why are you asking a dumb question? She's, she's gnarly. You know. But she'd say, yeah, do you see Claudia there? Yeah. Uh, tell me whether she's real. Go touch her on the shoulder. Is she really there? Oh, okay, then that's good. Then Claudia is absolutely inherently existent, right? Because a dream person touched a dream person and, dream, and dreamily reported to me as a dream person. <laughs> and therefore, that's pretty much proof. <laughs> but it happens all the time. You could, have, you could be playing rugby in your dream. You know, bodies colliding, bruises, blood flowing, everybody having a great time. <laughs> Calling in the medics, you know, taking people off in stretchers, the crowd cheering. All that can happen in a dream. Why not? You know, especially in Australia. <laughs> right? And yet, and that's definitely causality. I mean, two big brutes slamming into each other, you know, like that teeth flying. It can happen in a dream as much as any other time. And they're all empty appearances. The fact that they're consensual, just ask people the next time you go to a Datura party. (laughs) (laughs) Are you seeing it? Well, now that you mention it, yeah, I am. Samsara is kind of like a mass hypnosis. And so during the waking state, daytime dream yoga, don't brainwash yourself. If this is true, then you don't need to brainwash yourself. You don't need to recite slogans. You don't need to try to persuade yourself. You don't try, need to be try, try to be a good believer and so forth. Just be as smart as you possibly can and observe carefully what is arising. And see, kind of what's frankly obvious, that all these appearances are simply appearances arising in the space of awareness. And that's all there is, including Doug, touching Claudia on the shoulder and finding, yes, tactile sensations are arising. Does that prove the existence of atoms that are inherently there prior to an independent observation? don't think so. Why? Could you be in a dream and in the dream be an atomic physicist and running experiments on elementary particles? Why not? Why not? Sure. So one person mentioned, well, isn't it true that our subjective is illusory? 
because it clearly is. I mean, the neuroscientists would agree with that, the physicists, the psychologists, the Buddhists, you know, okay, it looks like one, one big happy family. Appearances are illusory. But of course, the difference is that not just the materialists, but metaphysical realists, and they are among Indians, Tibetans, Bhutanese, and so forth and so on. There are metaphysical realists everywhere. As you don't have to be materialist by any means. Is that, of course, well, that, yeah, these appearances are illusory. But, of course, there really is a world out there. You know, the world. I mean, you know, atoms, molecules, laws of nature, gravity, radiation. You know, the world. That's out there. That's really out there. Our experience of it, that's illusory. But thank goodness those scientists are leaping the fence and finding out what's really there when we're not looking when we're lying asleep in the bed, the scientists finding out what's there when we're all asleep. It makes a lot of sense if you don't know anything at all about 20th century physics. But the simple point is that as I'm gazing at that little platform, that little bench with its maroon cloth cover, the colors that I'm seeing don't exist, of course, in the molecules or in my eyeball or in my visual cortex. They are empty appearances arising relative to my perception as my perception of the meditation bench is rising relative to the meditation bench. The appearances don't exist about, apart from the awareness of them, and the awareness of them doesn't exist apart from the appearances. So that's, again, one of those situations. But now, as a person who's spent some years studying physics, enough, I think, for my purposes. Whatever a student of physics, that's what I am, or a physicist, of which there are many, what, however rich, detailed, sophisticated, and rigorous our understanding is of the molecular constitution of that meditation bench, and the nature of the photons being emitted from it, Whatever comes to mind as we imagine, as we bring to mind what's really there, independently of, that is really out there in physical space, made of real atoms, real molecules, and so forth, what's really there, that whole image, and they have lots of images, those have no more objective existence than the appearance of red. Consensual, sure, but anybody, look at, the, look at the meditation bench, you see maroon, it's red, we all agree on that. doesn't mean it's really there, it just means it's consensual. It's no more real, no less real. But that image, those constructs, they're called theoretical entities, they come to mind of what's there when nobody's looking. Those atoms, do they exist? The answer is yes. Do they exist there when I'm not looking? Yeah. Do they exist independently of the mind that conceived them? No. Why do you think that? Do you think you discovered those? You created them. Based upon the particular type of measurements you made, the questions you were answering, the data, the information that you gained, and your conceptualization of what that data means. And then we get images. And so atoms do exist. Elementary particles, Higgs boson, and so forth and so on, they do exist. They have causal efficacy. They are out there. 
and they do exist, but only relative to the mind that conceives them. Just as color exists relative to the visual perception of color. They do exist. But the very notion of out there is itself one more conceptual construct. Have you ever found actually the demarcation between out there and in there? Have you found the border? Have you looked at the border? In here? It's only in your mind? Rather, as opposed to it's out there in the real physical world. If you if you find the border, let me know. I'd like to I'd like to put a st- I'd like to put some some peas there. So I can know I can recognize it whenever I cross the border. Where is it just in your mind? And then where do you cross the border to out there where atoms are? Where's the border? Where's that demarcation between in here and out there? Where's that border? I want to see it. Because if the border's not real, listen carefully, if the border's not real, then out there is no more real than in here. The border has to be absolutely real if out there is absolutely out there. There's got to be a real border. So where's the border? And where's in here? Have you really ever found in here to be in? And where is in? Where is it? You've all seen Mickey Mouse on top of my head. That's in, right? But that doesn't make any sense. So you look for the border. Look at the border in daily life. The border. In and out. Where you're taking it seriously. Watch when the grasping comes in. That's your first practice in dream yoga. Okay, that's a deep one. Now let's just have fun. Because there's this wonderful modern discipline of lucid dreaming, which is occurring not utterly uninformed by the deeper and older practices of dream yoga, but nevertheless following its own secular trajectory. And they've done amazing work and very interesting work. So let's just play a little bit before, before dinner of setting up what will develop as a daytime and then eventually nighttime dream yoga practice as the complete complement to the teachings here on Vipassana. The, um, the most obvious thing about dreams is not that they're dreamy, because a lot of them don't seem dreamy at all. They seem as real as anything else. That's why we're, suck- we're suckered. That's why we're so easily misled, mistake dreams for being something they are not, namely a real waking reality. I think the most evident, unusual quality of dreams is that weird stuff happens. Anomalies happen. Really weird stuff. I'll tell you one of my little humorous ones I had just recently. It was a dream right at the end of the morning before I woke up. And dream I had when I started traveling on my own when the age of 20. I, I have still, they still crop up. Clearly it's an old, old thing. And so it's a dream of traveling. And I was traveling with a couple of companions, but I didn't know where they were. I was traveling with luggage, but I'd lost it. And I was in Switzerland, and I wanted to go to a city, and I was at a train station, but I couldn't remember what city I was going to. So I went to the ticket counter and bought a ticket for Zurich. And as walking away, I recalled, I didn't want to go to Zurich. I wanted to go to Geneva. 
And so I went back to the ticket counter, not knowing where my luggage is or where my friends are, not quite sure where I wanted to go, but I'm going to buy a ticket for sure. I go and I exchange my ticket from Zurich to Geneva. And I know this is Switzerland. I've lived there for years, so I kind of know the country a little bit. And I get the change back. It gave me some refund in Switzerland. And it's American currency. And on the currency, it's written in Spanish. <laughs> Does anything strong, any part of that dream sound at all strange to you? <laughs> you know, and just in an ordinary non-lucid dream said, that's strange, I didn't know that the American currency is now as pretty. <laughs> that's the first one I've seen, that's interesting. But thank you for the change. Like, you're so retarded that you're kind of wondering, how do they even let you loose? You've lost your luggage, you don't know where you're going, and you get American currency written in Spanish, and you kind of think it's, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, it's kind of like, whoa, they should never have let you out of whatever you came from. You should be there. Somebody should be taking care of you. you know? And that's tame. That's tame. I remember one fellow, he was having this dream where, where pigs were flying and people <laughs> just, they kissed the craziest, most psychedelic things. And he, in the dream he said, I wonder if any of these might be unreal. <laughs> what tipped you off, dude? <laughs> was it the color of the pig? <laughs> what was it? So this is the thing. I mean, dreams must have a sense of humor. If they're human beings, they're, they're incredible pranksters. And these kind of things happen a lot, right? You're in Queensland, and suddenly it's Melbourne, and then you're in, you know, New York, whatever, like that. So these are anomalies. These are the tip-offs. These are the dreams shouting at you. Wake up, stupid. Because we really are in a kind of, I mean, that dream, we can say, if I wasn't stupid then, what's stupid? That defines stupid, right? Look for anomalies. Look for anomalies. During the daytime practice, we're going to get to night, nighttime yoga later on. During the daytime, keep your eyes open now. You have mission, mission possible. And that is just look for anomalies. Anything out of the ordinary. Not miraculous, it doesn't have to be, you know, but just... Look for anomalies. Anything that just kind of, oh, that's strange. And as soon as you see any anomaly at all, you can't find your socks, you can't find your toothpaste, you just, oh, that's strange, I could, I could, oh, it was over there. I, here's a little anomaly, very common in dreams. You'll be, you come into a room in a dream, and you turn on the light, and it doesn't work. Click, 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 oh, must be something wrong with you. You have to call the electrician, click, click, click. The reason for that is because in your dream there's no wiring. It's just a knob. You're going click, 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 click. It's a knob connected to nothing. If there's a light up there, you know where the illumination is coming from for the light? Not electricity. <laughs> Your awareness is illuminating the light, which appears to be illuminating the room. So click, click, click. Don't get your hopes up. <laughs> you know? So if you find it doesn't work, if you find any anomaly at all, Ask yourself seriously, might I be dreaming? It's called a critical reflexive attitude. 
Seriously ask yourself. You're probably sure you're not dreaming, just like right now you're not dreaming. Probably. Depending on your perspective. But ask yourself, might I be dreaming? And then using not dream yoga techniques, using some of these very smart techniques from modern lucid dreaming, do a state check. They call it a reality check. I won't go for that. It's not a reality check. Because dreams are as real as anything else. They have causal efficacy. If something has causal efficacy, that's as real as it gets as far as I'm concerned. If it has causal efficacy, it can make me, if it can make me happy or make me suffer, or at least catalyze it, I feel ouch or who, that's as real as it gets for me. I don't need anything realer than that. You know, that's, that'll do. Something has causal efficacy, then, okay. Well, dreams have causal efficacy. People in dreams have causal efficacy. That is, the appearance of people in dreams have causal efficacy, right? Doug can touch cloudy shoulder in a dream, and yeah, causal efficacy. She says, what do you do that for? <laughs> you know, whatever. It'll have some causal effect. So, look for anomalies and then do a state check. A state check, you've probably heard them all if you've been listening to podcasts. The most fun one is the Pinocchio test. And then pull your nose. Pull your nose. Give it a good cut tug. And if you're dreaming, I've heard one person, I think, who did this, and it didn't work. Must have had a very reified nose. <laughs> didn't work. Didn't work. Did not. It did work. Yeah. It, it, got, it got longer. That's normal. That's good, yeah. Because, of course, your dream nose has no, no cartilage in it. And if you pull it, I mean, it feels like, what's that called? It feels like something it should get longer. Like bread dough or play dough or plastic or rubber band. It really should get longer. It just got some bone in there, you know, or cartilage, so it doesn't. But in a dream, there's no cartilage. So, but I, one person tried it, it didn't work. By and large, it's a really good test. If your nose gets longer, that should be pretty compelling evidence. <laughs> you're, prob you're probably dreaming. So that would be a good one. It's easy to do, and also, you can do it at any time, and nobody thinks you're really weird. <laughs> kind of that's important. I mean, here, everybody already knows you're weird. <laughs> so, I mean, here I am, you know, a big tall guy from America walking around in a dress. I mean, you know, what part of that isn't, what part of that isn't weird, you know? And so when I see the people driving their trucks up in a... <laughs> and where did you escape from? <laughs> You're very pretty, by the way. <laughs> until they see the nuns with their bald heads and they say, oh, you were pretty until, what did you do that for? <laughs> really, I mean, you didn't need to go out of your way to look weird. You know, bald men, we get used to. Bald women, that takes a bit more getting used to. So for them, that would be a dream sign. Honey, I saw the weirdest thing today. You wouldn't believe it. I saw this big guy wearing a red dress. And then I saw this woman, she was bald. She wasn't balding. I mean, she really was bald. You know, that would be a good green sign for them. So pulling your nose, that's a good one. And nobody will really notice if you just you know, pull your nose. That's good. They won't think you're weirder than you actually are. That's good. Or you can just jump up. That almost always works. Occasionally, somebody brings the laws of physics, the imaginary laws of physics, into the dream, and they come slumping down like normal. But most people, you jump straight up, 
and you float, or you drift down, or you drift away. Like those are two good examples. And those you can do without any pencil and paper. The Stephen LeBerge test, of course, is, is bring into your vi visual field something that is written, read it, take it out of your visual field, bring it back in. 85% chance it will be different, because they've, they've done a lot of studies of it. 85%, you re we read it the second time, it reads something entirely different. Of course, that's because there's nothing in your hand. It's out of your mind, it doesn't exist anywhere. Bring it back in, and so it's different. But do a state check. And so, and make it a habit. This is the thing about daytime dream yoga. Whether you're doing dream yoga practice, you're doing daytime lucid dreamy practice, there are similar, similar themes. And the theme is develop some habits, do them repeatedly, as many times as you can. And people, we here in our pod here, we don't have much else to do, so why not? You know, do it a lot. Do many state checks. Uh, you see, especially when you see any anomaly. But at any time, you know, just pull your nose, jump straight up. And uh, we'll really have a, have a reputation by the time we leave here from the staff. These people suddenly develop major allergies and they were just jumping up and down and I don't know why. <laughs> or, or, so that's the lucid dreaming approach. And now that we're over time, I'll just end. Daytime lucid dream practice. Just, if you have a sense that it's authentic, if you have a sense it's brainwashing, just don't do it. That's why I do that. But if you have a sense that there is a perspective from which it is valid to say, this is a dream, or at the very least, this is just like a dream, all these appearances arising in the space of mind, none of them inherently real, none of them existing from their own side. If you have some sense, either from your studies, investigation of emptiness, or your intuitive view from Rigma, this is a dream, this is like a dream, then sustain that as much as you can continuously throughout the course of the day. Make it a habit, and habits do tend to carry over into dreams. And sooner or later, if you're doing the lucid dreaming technique, you'll see something really weird, like American currency written in Spanish. That's odd. How odd? Oh, very odd. <laughs> you know? So that would tip you. You've, you've made a habit, and you see something odd, you pull your nose, and your nose gets longer. Or if you or just doing classic dream yoga daytime practice. This is a dream, this is a dream. You'll be cruising along in a dream. And you'll say, this is really a dream. Oh, it is. And you go to, you'll go lucid. Okay? So, that's a brief introduction. There's a lot more. It's fun. Uh, it's deep. It's playful. And it's not taught explicitly in this text, but it's utterly compatible with it and a very nice extension of Vipassana. So enjoy it. Uh, and as you're falling asleep, I have to before I go, before I go, let's do fall asleep, drawing that into our practice very quickly. You've, many have heard, heard this before. If you find it hard to fall asleep because your mind tends to be full of energy, agitated, a lot of rumination and so forth, then just do mind, mindfulness of breathing for a while. Full body awareness. Relax. Get a good night's sleep. Because that food, air, and sleep, three things that we need on a very regular basis. Yeah. So just get a good night's sleep. And mindfulness of breathing for the last half hour or so, just before you breathe, really calms things down. You'll probably get a much more restful, refreshing kind of sleep if you go into it with a calm mind that pleasantly gets drowsy and then drifts off. That's a big plus, get a good night's sleep. If you find it quite easy to fall asleep, then try settling the mind in its natural state. See how long as you're falling asleep you can keep the light on of awareness. 
without it being veiled by darkness and you're just falling into, into a non-lucid sleep. In between is resting in awareness of awareness. And that's a subtle one, it's a very nice one. So for those of us with quite a number of people here, more or less my age group, especially men, I think, more, more than women, waking up at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, you need to pee. Yeah? Oh, that's a really good time. When you're going back and you know, it happened to me that it was 2.40 this morning, 2.20 this morning, I woke up, same old thing. But I knew I needed a bit more sleep. I'm not quite finished. If it had been 3.30, then I would just you know, start, but two, I need a bit more. So just awareness of awareness. That doesn't tend to arouse the mind, agitate the mind, jack, jack the mind up. Mm. Just rest there, in that unflickering candle flame, and just see what happens. So that's enough. Have a good night's sleep. See you tomorrow morning. <laughs>